G'day, everyone. Great to see you all. Hello. There we are. Uh, just as we start, uh, you know I love showing people the real history of the Bible. I'm, I'm always amazed how many people just in the world are ignorant of the Bible and they, they think it's just all made-up stories. So I love to show people that it's actually history, it's real places, it's real people. So remember in last week's story, just flick back to chapter 2 in 1 Kings, uh, it talked about Elisha's spring in uh, Jericho. It talked about how he made the waters pure, which meant people could live in this place where before they'd been poisonous waters. Uh, here's a picture of Elisha's spring. It's a real place. You can go there in Jericho. Uh, it should be there anyway, except Kevin's looking at me and saying we've lost... Okay. We've got a problem with the slides. Okay, what we're going to do, open up 1 Kings chapter 3 again, not chapter 2, like I just said, and we're going to read the rest of the chapter. So let's have a look at it. Open it up. Jess read to the end of verse 19, so I'm going to read on. Verse 20, and that'll give Kev time to fix the slides. Uh, About the time for the grain offering the next morning, water suddenly came from the direction of Edom and filled the land. All Moab had heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, So all who could bear arms from the youngest to the oldest were summoned and took their stand at the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water and the Moabites saw that the water across from them was red like blood. This is blood, they exclaimed. The kings have clashed swords and killed each other. So do the spoil, Moab. However, when the Moabites came came to Israel's camp, the Israelites attacked them and they fled from them. So Israel went into the land and struck down the Moabites. They destroyed the cities and each of them threw stones to cover every good piece of land. They stopped up every spring of water and cut down every good tree. In the end, only the buildings of Kirkaraseph were left. Then men with slings surrounded the city and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took 700 swordsmen with him to try to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not do it. So he took his firstborn son, who was to become king in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the city wall. Great wrath was on the Israelites, and they withdrew from him and returned to their land. Look at that. That was perfect timing. Look at that. Well, there's Elisha's spring that I was talking about. Uh, the day I went there, which is in Jericho, as, as it says in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, it was about 42 degrees, and uh, I was too cheap to pay to go into the nice area near it. Uh, so we just walked downstream a little bit and ended up having a water fight with some local Palestinians. So there you go, there's another photo. That's before the water fight. Uh, it was a very friendly water fight, but uh, we didn't want to get our phones wet, so there's no photographic evidence of our water fight in Elisha's spring, but there you are. But in today's passage, if you go to Paris, it didn't happen in Paris, it happened... You know, anyway, if you go to Paris, you go to the Louvre in Paris... Uh, you can go and see a thing called the Mesha steel or the Moabite stone. We've got a photo of it. Uh, and what this is, they found this a couple hundred years ago, but it's actually a record by the king of Moab, who's in this story, uh, of his fights with Israel. And it's incredibly significant because it actually supports the Bible. It says here's a, another record outside the Bible that, uh, that supports the story we're reading. And I just share that with you to remind you this is history we're dealing with, not just sort of great stories, not myths. This is history. This is the true record of God's work in the world. uh, And that's how we need to receive it. But now let's pray and we'll get into this chapter. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you have worked through history to fulfill your promises to humanity. Uh, And in particular, we thank you for the way we see you at work in the history of the people of Israel working all things so that finally you sent your Saviour and our Lord, Jesus. Uh, 
And so, Father, we pray that as we look at this chapter from your Old Testament tonight, that we might see how it points forward to our Lord and our Saviour. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, do you ever get those uh, backhanded compliments from people where you think they're giving you a compliment at the start and then you realise actually they're sort of not giving you a compliment, uh, especially where they compare you to somewhere, someone else? I'll explain what I mean here. I'm just going to preface this. Uh, my predecessor here and I are great friends. I'm just going to say that, okay? The person who was before me here and I are great friends. And I have enormous respect for him. But many years ago, I was taking a funeral for a, uh, a person I didn't know, not a member of our church, and uh, an elderly lady came up to me after the service, and uh, I could see she didn't like me by the look on her face, uh, and there were no pleasantries. She just said, you know, I only come to your church for funerals. I thought, oh, well, this is a positive start. <laughs> so... So I thought I'd try and engage with her and meet her where she's at. And I, I said, well, how did you find the service today? And she said, oh, well, you weren't as bad as the last guy. <laughs> How's that? How's that for a compliment? There you go. Uh, how bad was the last guy? You know, so in one sense, it was a compliment. I was better than someone else. But she didn't have a lot of time for the someone else. So it was, it's damning someone with faint praise is what they call it, isn't it? Uh, well, today in Two Kings, we meet the next king of Israel, King Joram. In case you get confused, if you've got a different translation, he also gets called Jehoram at points, but uh, it gets called Joram here because there was another king, Jehoram, in Judah. It's very confusing. But anyway, Joram's brother, Ahaziah, he had died with no children, uh, and uh, Joram, the next son of Ahab and Jezebel, becomes king over Israel. And this is how we're introduced to Joram. Basically, it says, Joram was hopeless, but not as bad as his mum and dad. I've called the first part Joram, not as bad as the last guy. And this is verses 1 to 3. So look with me from verse 1. It says, Joram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria during the 18th year of Judah's king Jehoshaphat and reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not like his father and mother, for he removed the sacred pillar of Baal his father had made. Nevertheless, Joram clung to the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit he did not turn away from them. So as you read that, you, you, you could think, oh, things are moving in a positive direction for Israel. Ahab and Jezebel were awful. They totally despised God. They, they persecuted God's people. They tried to actually replace God with the Baals, with the pagan idols. Joram is not as bad as them. He's more like Jeroboam, who's what we call a, a syncretist. He didn't persecute people for following the one true God. He said, you can follow Yahweh, you can follow Baal, you can follow whichever God you like. He was happy to let anyone worship whoever they wanted. I think he's actually quite a modern leader. You know, it's tolerance and all that sort of thing. And so as you read it, we could think, well, things are getting better under Joram. One of the things this chapter does is remind us that there are not degrees of faithfulness. There are not degrees of faithfulness to God. You are either with God and so you hate other gods or you are against God. There's not a halfway spot. See, Joram should have known the Ten Commandments and especially you should have known the first two. Look on your screen uh, from the book of Exodus. I think it's coming up. Something's going wrong. It's all right. There it is, Exodus chapter 20. It says, do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You see, God does not accept some of our worship. 
Uh, yes, there are degrees of evil. Joram was not as evil as Ahab. Uh, but in the end, idolatry is idolatry. Sin is sin. Joram deserves God's judgment just like his father deserved God's judgment before him. And we're going to see that right through this story. But as we start, I just want to remind us of that danger in ourselves. See, we can fall into this trap in the way we view ourselves and in the way we view others. We think of some people as sinners, the the people with the more obvious moral failings in their lives, but other people seem more respectable, seem more middle class. Their, Their sin is hidden in their hearts and in their minds. This reminds us all people are sinners. All of us deserve God's judgment and all of us need God's forgiveness through Jesus. God's judgment will be just as awful for the nice, respectable, law-abiding citizen who does not turn to Jesus as it will be for the obvious evil person who does not turn to Jesus. On the last day, you'll either be someone who trusted in Jesus or someone who did not trust in Jesus. There's no in-between. But let's move on in the story. I've called the next part three bumbling kings. This is verses 4 to 14. So what's happened? A rebellion had sprung up with the death of Ahab. That often happens when, the, when there's a change in ruler. The people who are underneath think they can get out from underneath the power. The Moabites had been underneath the Israelites paying tribute to them. Uh, and so now they say, we're not going to do it anymore now that Ahab's dead. So Joram decides, I'll get my armies together, I'll do something about this. He gets all the fighting men from all across Israel, but then he thinks, I need some allies. So he calls on Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to join with him. Uh, And he thinks if Judah joins, that will also bring uh, Edom in, because Edom had an an alliance, it seems, with, uh, with Judah. It's a bit like in the World Wars. Remember when you did history in the World Wars, when Germany attacked France, that meant England had to come in, but that meant Italy had to come in, and Turkey had to come in, and all that sort of thing. It was a bit like that. And so King Jehoshaphat brings Judah's armies in for the fight. So we've got a map up on the screen, remember? By this stage, the kingdom is broken into two. You've got Israel in the north, that's where Joram's the king, and Jehoshaphat in the south with Judah, that's where he's the king. And so King Jehoshaphat, he brings Judah's armies in for the fight. And I think Jehoshaphat's really interesting. Besides having, I think, maybe the best name in the Bible... Uh, I remember reading a book as a king about Great Jumping Jehoshaphat. Did anyone else have that children's book, Great Jumping Jehoshaphat? And, and then there was a... Graham had it, there you go. And, uh, and then there was a song, I, I looked on YouTube, and there's a song, Great Jumping Jehoshaphat. You can look it up, like, terrible theology. So don't, don't listen to what it says, but it's a great song. But anyway, uh, great name, I think. Sam might have been named Jehoshaphat, I think, if Victoria hadn't vetoed it. That's, that's not actually true. He was going to be Maximilian, but she vetoed it. But anyway... Uh, besides his great name, Jehoshaphat is the king. You think I'm joking, but that's actually my favourite name, but Victoria wouldn't let me name any of my kids. Anyway, uh, Jehoshaphat, besides his great name, and this is really important, is the king of Judah. And remember, Judah is the real kingdom of God's promise. Israel's the, the offshoot. Judah is where the king is descended from David. Jehoshaphat is a descendant of David. The Bible's very positive about him more than that. He, he loved the Lord it tells us. Uh, He actually tried to reform Judah, bring people back to worshipping Yahweh, tried to get rid of all the idolatry. He wasn't perfect, but he's actually one of the few kings in these books who it's positive about. That's incredibly rare. One and two kings is just negative about all the kings, but not Jehoshaphat. It's positive about him. And you can read more about him in two chronicles and see all the, the good things he did if you want to. 
Uh, but this is the second time Jehoshaphat has appeared in, in 1 and 2 Kings. You might remember this was last year when we looked at 1 Kings. He actually agreed to help Ahab once before when he asked him for help. So this time, Joram sends a messenger to him. Look at verse 7. Jehoshaphat said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. It's actually hard to know if Jehoshaphat's doing the right thing uh, at this point. I think he is. I think he thinks, well, hang on, we're meant to be one people. We're not meant to be a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. That's not what God wants. These are my brothers and we're fighting against people who hate God. So he thinks, I think he's, it's a positive thing that he's doing this. But you also get the sense that he was a bit naive. That's the picture I have of Jehoshaphat. He's already done this with Ahab and it wasn't the best move when he did that. But here he just does exactly the same thing again. And I think perhaps he assumes that Joram and Israel were following God more than they actually were. I, I sometimes think of him as like the good-hearted but naive Christian who assumes the best in people but doesn't realise the deceptiveness of sin. But anyway, they set off together with their armies. They pick up the king of Edom and his armies on the way, but they go on this circuitous route through the desert. It's sort of like if I said to you tonight, I want you to drive to Engadine, and you say, yeah, I'll do that, and I'll go via Bowral to get there, and I'll come back around through Kangaroo Valley and up, up that way, except that there was a desert on the way as well and here it is on a map so they they could have just gone into Moab but they go all the way down the bottom of Judah and around up through Edom uh, and into Moab that way now there might have been uh, strategic reasons for that Uh, it might have been that it was really well defended in the north but but not in the south Uh, but anyway here they are going this way and look at what happened verse 9 it says so the king of Israel the king of Judah and the king of Edom set out After they had travelled their indirect route for seven days, they had no water for the army or their animals. This reminds me of whenever I go on a bushwalk with Victoria. Whenever we go on a bushwalk, she says, you need a bottle of water, and I say, I don't intend to walk for that far. So I don't need a bottle of water. Don't they have taps in the National Park? You know. And anyway, half half an hour in, I'm dying of thirst. I drink all Victoria's water, and that's the way it works. Here they are, heading into a war, but they're about to die of thirst. And so Joram turns around and what does he do? He blames God. Look at verse 10. It says, Then the king of Israel said, Oh no, the Lord has summoned three kings only to hand them over to Moab. At this point, I think, because we've just read the story, we went to say, hang on. When did you ever seek after Yahweh's advice on this? Here's Joram saying, God caused to do this. That, nowhere in the story does that happen. This is all his idea. You see, Joram is very, very human at this point. You see, it's amazing how common this is. People ignore God, but then blame God when things go wrong. Yes, God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. But God's sovereignty, as we call it, never overrides our responsibility for our decisions. You see, that truth of God's sovereignty is meant to be a wonderful comfort to people who love the Lord. We, we say, yes, God is in control. Romans tells us this. God is in control and he is working for the good of those who love him. That is meant to comfort believers. Amen. But it is a horrible sin to use that truth as an excuse for not taking responsibility for our sin or, or for our foolishness. I hope you know what I'm, I'm talking about here. 
Uh, sometimes people come to me because difficult things have happened through no fault of their own, just because we, we live in a fallen, broken world. And they say, you know, why is God letting this happen? And I want to say to that person, that is a legitimate question, if it then leads back to trusting in God and, and trusting in His goodness. But sometimes people act in a sinful way or act in a, a, a foolish way, and then there are consequences but then they dare to say, why is God letting this happen to me? As they face the consequences for their decisions. That is a horrible abuse of a wonderful truth. And that is Joram in this story. He blames the God he has ignored up until now. But at this point, Jehoshaphat pipes up. He might be a bit slow, he might be a bit naive, but his heart's in the right place. Uh, when in doubt, he thinks, ask God. So look at verse 11. But Jehoshaphat said, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here? Let's inquire of Yahweh through him. And there is a prophet. Elisha is hanging around and Jehoshaphat had heard good things about Elisha, so they go to see him. When they get there, I love this, they don't even get a question out. They go there to ask him a question, but straight away Elisha goes on the attack. Look at verse 13, it says, however Elisha said to King Joram of Israel, we have nothing in common. Go to the prophets of your father and your mother. He's saying, now that you're in trouble, you dare to come to God? Go back to those prophets of Baal you've loved all your life. Go and see whether they've got something to say to you. And this is where we see the point that we started with tonight. You either serve God and no one else, or you don't serve God. You either serve God and no one else, or you don't serve God. God and his prophet Elisha here have no time for half-hearted people, for people who want to bob each way. If I can be very frank, it's like people who call themselves Christians, but who pay no attention, no attention to God, no attention to His Word, no attention to His people until they need something from God. Be very, very careful of that sort of half-hearted nominalism. That's what Elisha is judging in Joram here. But then Elisha surprises us and he says, but I will help you but only because Jehoshaphat is a part of this. Look at verse 14. Elisha responded, As the Lord of hosts lives, I stand before him. If I did not have respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would not look at you. I wouldn't take notice of you. Interesting, some people really struggle with Elisha. He just seems quite harsh and, and judgmental at points. In fact, over the last week, since we first properly met Elisha in last week's passage, I had a number of people saying to me, Oh, I really struggle at how harsh he is on people. And Elisha is certainly not nice in the modern sense. But I think actually when you read the Gospels, Jesus is often not nice in the modern sense. Jesus is very harsh on the Pharisees. He's harsh on people who should know better. And you see, I think if we struggle with Elisha, we're actually struggling with God. God has no time for fair-weather disciples. God has no time for people who seek him out when it suits him, who treat, treat him like a genie to get them out of trouble, but who aren't interested in living as his disciples. As Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, if you want to be my disciple, come to me when you feel like it. Let those with ears to hear, hear Elisha's challenge to Joram. But that brings us to the next part of our story, which I've called God's abundant blessing. And this is verses 15 to 25. Because despite his disdain for Joram, Elisha does prophesy for them. And you see this from verse 15. 
I don't know why Elisha needed a musician to play. Did you notice that, how he called for a musician? Uh, I wonder if he is just so angry at Joram and so annoyed that he has to do this, if you like, that, that he needs a musician to calm himself down. But we, we don't know. But he tells them, look, dig some ditches and God will fill them with water for you. You're not going to die of thirst. God will provide for you. But then, and by the way, that is an incredible miracle. If you go to that part of the world, you you can set your whole calendar by when there will be water. There is only water in the month when it rains. The rest of the year, there is nothing there. This is not a minor miracle that that God is doing at this point. To bring water in that desert is, is incredible. But then there's just this wonderful moment in verse 18. Look with me. He says, this is easy in the Lord's sight. He will also hand Moab over to you. See what he's saying there? We actually just sort of skate over it as we read the story. But he's saying, just giving you water from the desert is too trivial for me. That's too easy for God to just do that. That's too simple. I'm going to do something far, far better than that. I won't just give you what you asked for, which is enough water so that you survive and can have a fight. I'm going to win the fight for you. I'm going to win the battle for you. I'll give you victory over the Moabites. And I think this is just a wonderful glimpse into the character of God. It's a glimpse into the generosity of God towards his people. For us as Christians, it would be wonderful enough to just have God forgive us our sin. If if you truly know, if we truly know the depths of our sin, it would be wonderful enough, gracious enough for God to just say, I forgive you, now go sit in the corner and have nothing more to do with me. That would actually be so much more than we deserve. For God to just say, I forgive you, but I don't want to see you again. But our God does so much more than that, doesn't he? It's not enough for God. God gives you every spiritual blessing in Christ. God does not just forgive you. He adopts you into his family and says, you can call me your father. He gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit. God guarantees us a place in his eternal kingdom. It's like at the start of John's gospel, John 1, 16, where it says, indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. I prefer it when it says grace on top of grace. It's like this idea of God doesn't just give you this much grace, he gives you more grace and more grace and more grace. That is the abundant generosity of God. And that's what he does here for Joram and Jehoshaphat. He doesn't just bring water from nothing to to keep them alive. He then uses that water to trick the superstitious Moabites into a a foolish attack and Israel totally destroys their enemy, just like God said they would. And that is the God we know and we have met in Jesus, the God who gives us far more than we could ever think to ask for. God abundantly blesses his people. But there's a problem here. Have a look at it again. What's the problem? The problem, I think, is why is God so gracious to Joram of all people? Given what Elisha said about him, why is God so gracious to Joram? It's not like he deserves it. Remember the the spray that he just got from Elisha on behalf of God. So why is God so gracious to him? Well, the key verse in this whole chapter is verse 14. Go back to verse 14. Look there again. He says, If I did not have respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah... I would not look at you. The one smart thing that Joram did is invite the son of David along for the ride. 
The one smart thing Jehoshaphat did is invite the current Messiah, at that time that was Jehoshaphat, along for this battle. God doesn't bless Joram because he deserves it, Joram gets blessed because he is with the one God loves. And this is actually pointing forward to us and the gospel. You see, we have every spiritual blessing, not because we deserve it. God doesn't look down and say, Phil's a good guy, I'm going to give him every spiritual blessing. That's not how it works. We were like Joram. We were half-hearted creatures who'd rebelled against God. All we deserve is exactly the same spray that Elisha gave Joram. Now, we have every spiritual blessing only because of who we cling to, of who we are with. It's only if we are with Jehoshaphat's greatest descendant, the true Messiah, our Lord Jesus. See, God doesn't look kindly on us because we deserve it, but because we cling to Christ. Look at how he puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Those words are so important, in Christ. It's only in Christ that we receive the blessings of God. We don't even deserve God's crumbs. You remember that story? The crumbs under the table that the lady says to Jesus. We don't even deserve God's crumbs. But if we trust in Jesus, God looks at him, not at us, and we receive God's abundant blessings because we are in Christ. We almost wish the story ended there with Israel's great victory, but there's one final, somewhat disturbing scene. So look with me, verses 26 to 27, and what I've called, would you follow another God? See, Israel's won. The battle's over. God has, has given them the victory. Uh, there's only a tiny remnant of Moabites left in one town, and the king of Moab has one final push, and he tries to break out past the king of Edom because he thinks he might be the weak link, he doesn't even want to be there, uh, but even that fails. So in desperation, he does what he thinks his pagan god, Chemosh, that was the god they worshipped, what he thinks he wants. Look at verse 27, it says, so he took his firstborn son, who was to become king in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the city wall. He sacrifices his own son to his God. I want to say to you, do not fall into the trap of having a romantic view of the world without God's law and without Christ. Uh, modern propaganda loves to pretend, and this is the common view in our world at the moment, that, that the world was wonderful and free and beautiful and then Christianity came along and ruined it. That is a horrible, horrible lie. What you read here is what pagan religions did before the gospel came. This is what our world was like before the gospel came. This is what human beings come up with when they turn away from the one true God. You are meant to be horrified by this. But then something strange happens, strange to our ears anyway. It works. Look at the rest of the verse. It says, Great wrath was on the Israelites and they withdrew from him and returned to their land. What happened here? Uh, unfortunately, this is one of those verses that's quite unclear. And the problem is it doesn't say whose wrath it was. So some people think it was God's wrath that fell on the Israelites. And, and they think, well, they deserved it. And this is God saying, I'll give you the victory, but I'm still going to give you a bit of a kicking, Joram, 
because you deserve it. But that would mean God responded to something he hates. So I don't think that can be what's happening here. It can't be Chemoth, the pagan god's wrath, because he's just an idol made of wood or stone. So it's not like he's real. Uh, Some people think it's the Moabites' wrath, you know, that this sacrifice inspired them so much that they went out and finally won a battle. Uh, Others think the Israelites' legs turned to jelly and this sort of shows that they were still fearful of pagan gods. They saw this and they thought, we better, we're scared of their gods, and they ran away. This is one of those verses where we can't be certain. But I wonder if it's actually the Israelites' wrath in the sense of horror or indignation. It's possible to read it that way. I wonder if they were so disturbed when they saw this man sacrifice, burn his son on the city walls, they were so disturbed that they just packed it up and went home. Either way, and we can't know, as I say, it's unclear, either way, I think that is what this passage was meant to teach the people of Israel. I think this is here in the Bible because it's meant to say to them, do you realise how wonderful your God is compared to the pagan gods? Remember, Joram and the people of Israel were half-hearted. They wanted to follow Yahweh and they wanted to follow the Baals, they wanted to follow Cherith, they wanted to follow them all. And this is saying, do you realise how wonderful your God is compared to that? Why would you want to be a part of that? Why would you be dabbling with with pagan religion that even sacrifices their own children to their gods? Why would you want to be a part of that when you know the God who showers abundant blessings on his people? When you know the God who is the one true loving God of the universe? And I must admit, as I read this, I think this about our modern world. Sometimes I think Christians look out at our world and some Christians sort of think, oh, we're missing out. Actually, I look out at our world as it moves further and further away from God, as it moves further and further away from God's ways, and I think, why would I want that? I look out at our world and all I see is moral confusion. I look out at our world and and all I see is evil called good and, and good called evil. I look out at our world and I see an epidemic of hopelessness. I see people sacrificing themselves and sacrificing their children on an altar of selfishness. And you see people trying to find meaning in hobbies and money and sex and drinking and whatever else, but not finding it because those things cannot give you meaning. I look at our world and I'm not so much angry at it, I'm not so much indignant at it, I'm just despairing for it. Why would you want that? Why would you want what our world offers when you know the God who loves you? Why would you want what our world offers when you know the God who gives you meaning and gives you every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's what I think we need to walk away with from this final scene. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ. You give us so much more than we deserve. You give us so much more even than we could ever ask for because you love us and have sent your Son to be our Saviour. And so, Father, help us not to look at our world uh, and think that it has anything to offer us. Instead, we pray that we would see that you are the one who offers true meeting and abundant blessing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.